section thirty one of a history of our own times volume three by justin mccarthy this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by pamela nagami chapter forty four the cruise of the alabama part one the cause of peace between nations lost a good friend at the close of eighteen sixty one the prince consort died it is believed that the latest advice he gave on public affairs had reference to the dispute between england and the united states about the seizure of the confederate envoys and that the advice recommended calmness and forbearance on the part of the english government it is not to be supposed of course that the prince consort even thought of suggesting that the english government should acquiesce in what had been done or allow the wrong to remain unredressed he knew as every reasonable man might have known that the error of the american sailor was unjustifiable and would have to be atoned for but he probably assumed that for that very reason the atonement might be awaited without excitement and believed that it would neither be politic nor generous to make a show of compelling by force what must needs be conceded to justice the death of the prince consort lamentable in every way was especially to be deplored at a time when influential counsels tending toward forbearance and peace were much needed in england but it may be said with literal truth that when the news of the prince's death was made known its possible effect on the public affairs of england was forgotten or unthought of in the regret for the personal loss outside the precincts of windsor castle itself the event was wholly unexpected perhaps even within the precincts of the castle there was little expectation up to the last that such a calamity was so near the public had only learned a few days before that the prince was unwell on december eighth the court circular mentioned that he was confined to his room by a feverish cold then it was announced that he was suffering from fever unattended by unfavourable symptoms but likely from its symptoms to continue for some time this latter announcement appeared in the form of a bulletin on wednesday december eleventh about the midnight of saturday the fourteenth there was some sensation and surprise created throughout london by the tolling of the great bell of st paul's not many people even suspected the import of the unusual sound it signified the death of the prince consort he died at ten minutes before eleven that saturday night in the presence of the queen the prince of wales and the princesses alice and helena the fever had become fierce and wasting on friday and from that time it was only a descent to death congestion of the lungs set in the consequence of exhaustion the prince fell into utter weakness and died conscious but without pain he knew the queen to the last his latest look was turned to her the prince consort was little more than forty-two years of age when he died he had always seemed to be in good although not perhaps robust health and he had led a singularly temperate life no one in the kingdom seemed less likely to be prematurely cut off and his death came on the whole country with the shock of an utter surprise the regret was universal and the deepest regret was for the wife he had loved so dearly 
and whom he was condemned so soon to leave behind every testimony has spoken to the singularly tender and sweet affection of the loving home the queen and prince had made for themselves a domestic happiness rare even among the obscurest was given to them it is one of the necessities of royal position that marriage should be seldom the union of hearts the choice is limited by considerations which do not affect people in private life the convenience of states has to be taken into account the possible likings and dislikings of peoples whom perhaps the bride and bridegroom have never seen and are never destined to see a marriage among princes is in nine cases out of ten a marriage of convenience only seldom indeed is it made as that of the queen was wholly out of love seldom is it even in love matches when the instincts of love are not deceived and the affection grows stronger with the days every one knew that this had been the strange good fortune of the queen of england there was something poetic romantic in the sympathy with which so many faithful and loving hearts turned to her in her hour of unspeakable distress we have already endeavoured to do justice to the character of the prince consort to show what was his intellectual constitution what were its strong points and what its weaknesses and limitations it is not necessary to go over that task again it will be enough to say that the country which had not understood him at first was beginning more and more to recognize his genuine worth even those who are still far from believing that his influence in politics always worked with good result are ready to admit that his influence socially and morally was that which must always come from the example of a pure and noble life of him it might fairly have been said in the classic words that from his mouth nihil unquam insolens neque gloriosum exeit perhaps as we have been considering the influence of the prince consort on the councils of england during the earlier part of the american civil war it will be appropriate to quote some sentences in which the eminent american historian already mentioned dr draper speaks of him one illustrious man there was in england dr draper says who saw that the great interests of the future would be better subserved by a sincere friendship with america than by the transitory alliances of europe he recognized the bonds of race his prudent counsels strengthened the determination of the sovereign that the trent controversy should have an honourable and peaceful solution had the desires of these the most exalted personages in the realm been more completely fulfilled the administration of lord palmerston would not have cast a disastrous shadow on the future of the anglo-saxon race dr draper may be thought unjust to lord palmerston he certainly is only just to the prince consort after the dispute about the trent the feeling between england and the united states became one of distrust and almost of hostility we cannot help thinking that the manner in which our government managed the dispute the superfluous display of force like a pistol thrust at the head of a disputant whom mere argument is already bringing to reason had a great deal to do with the growth of this bitter feeling the controversy about the trent was hardly over when lord russell and mr adams were engaged in the more prolonged 
and far more serious controversy about the confederate privateers the adventures of the confederate cruisers began with the escape of a small schooner the savannah from charleston in june eighteen sixty one it scoured the seas for a while as a privateer and did some damage to the shipping of the northern states the sumter had a more memorable career she was under the command of captain semmes who afterwards became famous and during her time she did some little damage the nashville and the petrel were also well known for a while these were however but small vessels and each had only a short run of it the first privateer which became really formidable to the shipping of the north was a vessel called in her earlier history the oretto but afterwards better known as the florida within three months she had captured fifteen vessels thirteen of these she burnt and the other two were converted into cruisers by the confederate government the florida was built in birkenhead nominally for the use of the italian government she got out of the mersey without detention or difficulty although the american minister had warned our government of her real purpose from that time great britain became what an american writer calls without any exaggeration the naval base of the confederacy as fast as shipbuilders could work they were preparing in british shipping yards a privateer navy for the confederate government mr gladstone said in a speech which was the subject of much comment that jefferson davis had made a navy the statement was at all events not literally correct the english shipbuilders made the navy mr davis only ordered it and paid for it only seven confederate privateers were really formidable to the united states and of these five were built in british dockyards we are not including in the list any of the actual war vessels the rams and ironclads that british energy was preparing for the confederate government we are now speaking merely of the privateers of these privateers the most famous by far was the alabama it was the fortune of this vessel to be the occasion of the establishment of a new rule in the law of nations it had nearly been her fortune to bring england and the united states into war the alabama was built expressly for the confederate service in one of the dockyards of the mersey she was built by the house of laird a firm of the greatest reputation in the shipbuilding trade and whose former head was the representative of birkenhead in the house of commons while in process of construction she was called the two ninety and it was not until she was put to sea and hoisted the confederate flag and captain semmes formerly commander of the sumter had appeared on her deck in full confederate uniform that she took the name of the alabama during her career the alabama captured nearly seventy northern vessels her plan was always the same she hoisted the british flag and thus decoyed her attended victim within her reach then she displayed the confederate colors and captured her prize unless when there was some particular motive for making use of the captured vessels they were burnt sometimes the blazing wreck became the means of decoying a new victim some american captain saw far off in the night the flames of a burning vessel reddening the sea he steered to her aid and when he came near enough the alabama which was yet in the same waters had watched his coming fired her shot across his bows 
hung out her flag and made him her prisoner one american captain bitterly complained that the fire which seen across the waves at any other time became a summons to every seaman to hasten to the rescue must thenceforward be a signal to him to hold his course and keep away from the blazing ship the alabama and her captain were of course much glorified in this country captain semmes was eulogized as if his exploits had been those of another cochrane or canaris but the alabama did not do much fighting she preyed on merchant vessels that could not fight she attacked where instant surrender must be the reply to her summons only twice so far as we know did she engage in a fight the first time was with the hatteras a small blockading ship whose broadside was so unequal to that of the alabama that she was sunk in a quarter of an hour the second time was with the united states ship of war kearsarge whose size and armaments were about equal to her own the fight took place off the french shore near cherbourg and the career of the alabama was finished in an hour the confederate rover was utterly shattered and went down captain semmes was saved by an english steam yacht and brought to england to be made a hero for a while and then forgotten the cruise of the alabama had lasted nearly two years during this time she had contrived to drive american commerce from the seas her later cruising days were unprofitable for american owners found it necessary to keep their vessels in port all this however it will be said was but the fortune of war america had not abolished privateering and if the northern states suffered from so clever and daring a privateer as captain semmes it was of little use their complaining of it if they could not catch and capture the alabama that was their misfortune or their fault what the united states government did complain of was something very different they complained that the alabama was practically an english vessel she was built by english builders in an english dockyard she was manned for the most part by an english crew her guns were english her gunners were english many of the latter belonged to the royal naval reserve and were actually receiving pay from the english government she sailed under the english flag was welcomed in english harbours and never was in or even saw confederate port as mr forster put it very clearly and tersely she was built by british shipbuilders and manned by a british crew she drew prizes to destruction under a british flag and was paid for by money borrowed from british capitalists mr adams called the attention of the government in good time to the fact that the alabama was in course of construction in the dockyard of messrs laird and that she was intended for the confederate government lord russell asked for proofs mr adams forwarded what he considered proof enough to make out a case for the detention of the vessel pending further inquiry the opinion of an eminent english lawyer now sir robert collier was also sent to lord russell by mr adams this opinion declared that the vessel ought to be detained by the collector of customs at liverpool and added that it appeared difficult to make out a stronger case of infringement of the foreign enlistment act which if not enforced on this occasion is little better than a dead letter the english government still asked for proofs 
it did not seem to have occurred to our authorities that if they set a little inquiry on foot themselves they might be able to conduct it much more efficiently than a stranger like mr adams could do what mr adams asked for was inquiry with a view to detention he did not ask for the infringement of any domestic law of england he only asked for such steps to be taken as would allow the law of england to be put in force the argument of the correspondence on our side seemed to be that a stranger had no right to the protection of our laws until he could make out a case which would amount to the legal conviction of those against whom he asked to be protected we cannot better summarize the correspondence than by saying it was as if mr adams had forwarded affidavits alleging that there was a conspiracy to murder him had named the persons against whom he made the charge and asked for an inquiry and protection from the government and the government had answered that until he could make out a case for the actual conviction of the accused it was no part of the business of our police to interfere let us dispose of one simple question of fact there never was the slightest doubt on the mind of any one about the business for which the vessel in the birkenhead dockyard was destined there was no attempt at concealment in the matter newspaper paragraphs described the gradual construction of the confederate cruiser as if it were a british vessel of war that messrs laird had in hand there never was any question about her destination openly in the face of day she was built by the laird firm for the confederate service the lairds built her as they would have built any vessel for any one who ordered it and could pay for it we see no particular reason for blaming them they certainly made no mystery of the matter then or after whatever technical difficulties might have intervened it is clear that no real doubt on the mind of the government had anything to do with the delays that took place at last lord russell asked for the opinion of the queen's advocate time was pressing the cruiser was nearly ready for sea everything seemed to be against us the queen's advocate happened to be sick at the moment and there was another delay at last he gave his opinion that the vessel ought to be detained the opinion came just too late the alabama had got to sea her cruise of nearly two years began she went upon her destroying course with the cheers of english sympathizers and the rapturous tirades of english newspapers glorifying her every misfortune that befell an american merchantman was received in this country with a roar of delight when mr bright brought on the question in the house of commons mr laird declared that he would rather be known as the builder of a dozen alabamas than be a man who like mr bright had set class against class and the majority of the house applauded him to the echo lord palmerston peremptorily declared that in this country we were not in the habit of altering our laws to please a foreign state a declaration which came with becoming effect from the author of the abortive conspiracy bill got up to propitiate the emperor of the french End of section 31